You may be seated. And this morning we'll be in 1 John chapter 2, reading verses 18 to 27. 1 John 2, 18 to 27, that's on page 1900 in the Pew Bible. First John 2, verses 18 to 27. Before we read that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is glorious because in it we see you. And so as it reigns over us as your divine word, We ask that you would bring us before it in humble submission. That we would come before it ready and eager to see you. And then as well to be instructed by you. We know that all of your instructions are for our good. So let us come away from this time in your word holier, more joyful, and having a clearer vision of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First John 2, starting in verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what He promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. It really is by God's providence an appropriate passage for a morning with a profession of faith, as we see that whoever denies the Son, denies the Father, whoever has the Son has the Father as well. There are very few things that excite the mind of the church throughout the ages, like, like verses, like verse 18. This is the last hour. Oh, that gets us excited. It gets Christians excited. It gets us excited because there is a suspense to it. 
What does he mean? We know that he doesn't mean it's the literal last hour. This is something metaphorical. We we know that when John wrote this letter to his group of churches, he did not mean, of course, that literally within 60 minutes of them receiving this letter that Jesus would come back. It is obviously a metaphor. And so we are intrigued by this. How long is this last hour? What does he mean by it it is this last hour? hour. But then to compound that and to build on top of that, John uses another word that thrills us and intrigues us. He uses the word antichrist. And if there is anything that spins the, spins the mind of the modern person, it is the Antichrist. So you put those together, last hour and Antichrist, and you would have the, you would have the theme of a best-selling Christian book series, I'm sure. Of course we did. I wouldn't take your end times theology from left behind. If you can read it as fiction and leave it at that, that's fine. If you can't, then you should put it back on the shelf or somebody else's shelf maybe for your benefit. But this drives us to a sense of excitement. Antichrist. Last hour. These things intrigue us, but there's something that puzzles us which would not have puzzled the the first century believer, and that is, this has been a very long hour. 1,900 years is a very long hour. So how do we understand what, what John is saying when he says it's the last hour? We need to understand that last hour is more of a theological term than it is a chronological term. He means that this is the last stage in God's redemptive covenant work to bring salvation and redemptive to his people and his creation. You can think of there are all kinds of different ages or hours, we might say, in the history of the church. There was the Edenic age or the Edenic hour, Eden, a very different place than our own. And then there's, how's this for a word, there's the antediluvian hour. That is the time before the flood. See, I can impress you with my fancy learning and stuff, right? This is the, this is the time before the flood. That's a very different time as well. If you read in Genesis before the flood, it seems like a foreign world to us. And then you have the time of the patriarchs, the time of slavery in Egypt and Moses, the time of the judges and the kingdom and the prophets, and all these different times when God progressively reveals himself and progressively brings his people nearer to a fuller revelation of how he's going to keep his promise to redeem his people. And then you come with the incarnation and the perfection and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus to the last hour. We come to an hour of the kingdom when the reign of Christ extends and runs throughout the earth to every tribe and nation and people and tongue as the kingdom is built. It expands in a way that it had never expanded before. And this is the last hour. This is the last hour before Christ returns. There are no more kings, no more covenants, only Christ in the fullness of his own kingdom. And so John says already to these first century believers that they are in the final hour. 
And we have this in common with them, that we live in the same hour as they did. As they awaited the coming of the Christ, so too we await the coming of the Christ. This is sort of like what we say in the Apostles' Creed, or the Nicene Creed, when we say this in the Apostles' Creed, He shall come again to judge the living and the dead. That's the end of this hour. Or the Nicene Creed, just a little bit more, and He shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. That's what these antichrists are about. They're seeking to pull people away from a hope of the coming of the divine Christ. And here, John seems to be pulling off of Jesus' teaching. We'll read a little bit here from Matthew in a little bit. Uh, Matthew and John, they, they write different gospels with a little bit different theme, a little bit different emphasis. But remember, they're both disciples of the same Jesus. And what Matthew would have heard, John would have heard. And what John would have heard, Matthew would have heard. And so, and so John draws on this teaching of Jesus about people who will lie, who will be false in the future. And so from Matthew 24, reading first from verses 3 to 8, this is what Jesus had said. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. You see that, that Jesus is telling them what to expect before Christ returns. It goes on a little bit later, verses 24 and 25. For false messiahs, that is false Christ, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you, ahead of time. And so John uses this striking choice of words, final hour and antichrist, to draw our attention into the text. After all, if we are in the final hour, then the stakes are immeasurably high. So John draws us in, and then he proceeds in verse 19 to begin to tell us who these antichrists are. He says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now here, John commits a very serious late 20th, early 21st century no-no. John creates an us-them dynamic. There is a strict separation between persons that John speaks of in verse 19. Just listen to the us's and the them's, the us's and the days. He says, they went out from us, and they did not really belong to us. And if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. John is being very exclusive, isn't he? 
Of course, he's being exclusive because Jesus was exclusive. Jesus said, whoever is not for me is against me. You are either a citizen of the kingdom of God or a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. You either walk in the light or you walk in the dark. There is no middle ground. There's, there's no gray in the people of God. Either you belong to God or you do not. Think about it like this. This is one of my favorite metaphors. You go back to the time of Noah. There were two kinds of people in Noah's age. There were those on the ark and those off the ark. If you were on the ark, you were going to live. If you were off the ark, you were going to drown. That's what John is saying here. There are two kinds of people that he is speaking of. There are those who remained in the church and are still part of the true church, and there are those who have left the church and have left behind the true church and the true gospel. Light and dark, saved and lost, truth and liar. John is a rather simple man. I appreciate that about John. John doesn't usually use these, these real complex arguments. You know, it's very difficult in our day to get straight answers from people. Well, I noticed this. I'm, I'm going to throw some shade, so to speak, at our youth group kids. I notice this sometimes. You know, you can't just get a yes or a no out of kids. You ask them if they're going to do something, they say, maybe. You know what they mean by maybe? They mean, if nothing that I would prefer to do comes up between now and the time we're supposed to leave for whatever it is you've invited me to. But it's difficult as well to get straight answers out of anybody. If you watch the Senate hearings lately, nobody gives straight answers. Nobody asks questions that are actually questions. It's all grandstanding. But something of concern to me just this last week was to see how words don't even really mean things anymore. Webster's Dictionary is watching the Senate hearings and they go on just seconds after something is said and they change the meaning of a word. Just like that. You can't even know what words mean anymore. But John is so simple. He speaks so plainly. He doesn't pull any punches. It's very clear. There's us's and there's them's. But what makes a person an us, and what makes someone else a them? And that's what he's going to get into a little bit here. He says that those who left behind are the theys. Those who left the church, they are the ones that John is speaking of. And they never really belonged to us in the first place. And this gets us to another truth that we still can use very beneficially today. And that is a distinction between what we call the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is, is all those who have professed faith together with their baptized children. We are the visible church. But we might say that that's sort of like a, a portrait or a canvas painting. But inside that canvas painting, there's invisible ink as well. And we can't see that. And the invisible ink is the true believer and the elect one of God. And just because someone is in a church or has been baptized in the course of their life does not mean that they truly love God or truly belong to God's people. So you might sit by someone in church and they be, may be a part of the visible church, but not a part of the invisible church. And you may walk past somebody on Ridge Road 
who's sort of an evangelical atheist who would like you to be one as well, but it may be that one day the Lord will convert them, and they are in fact a part of the invisible church. Things are not always as they appear, and so that applies here with with John's writing. He says, those who have left never really belong to us. They were present in the visible church for a time, but by their actions they have shown that they are not they are not really and never were a part of the invisible church. And so in this case, these antichrists, those who are opposed to Christ, have left. But we haven't really learned why yet. So John goes a little bit farther in verses 20 and 21 to give us some information about who these people are and why they left. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Now there's a hint here. Why have these people left? It's a matter of doctrine. I write to you because you know the truth, and no lie comes from the truth. And what he's implying, and what we'll see explicitly in just a a verse or two, is that the issue is an issue of truth. Those who have left have claimed a different truth from the one that John's church has already known. And so they believe something different than what John preached. And so we'll see more about that here as we turn into verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. You go back into those those last two verses, 20 and 21, and you see that John is not writing them anything new. We might say that he's writing not to inform them, but to affirm them. And now you come into these next two verses, and you see what he's trying to affirm in them. What he's trying to affirm in them is that Jesus is the Christ. And when he says Christ, he means that he is the divine Son of God. And what these people who had left are trying to question, are rejecting, is that Jesus is in fact fully divine. And they might have embraced that he was somewhat divine. They might have embraced that he was some kind of God. It's likely that what they believed is that at Jesus' baptism, God kind of descended upon him, making him something of a divine being. But before he's crucified, God leaves him and he suffers on the cross only as a divine being, only as a human being. So it's it's like he kind of seemed to be God. But he wasn't really God. So they reject that Jesus is the Christ. They are what we call heretics. A heretic is not just someone who gets something wrong. Praise the Lord. A heretic is not just someone who gets something wrong. A heretic is someone who gets something wrong which guts the gospel of all of its power. Someone who denies that Jesus is fully human is a heretic. Because if he is not fully human, then he cannot represent us as our substitute, and we are still in our sins. 
Someone who rejects that Jesus is fully divine is a heretic because Jesus received worship. Only God may receive worship. If Jesus is not God and received worship, then he is a blasphemer and we are still in our sins. Someone who denies that Jesus is fully divine is a heretic as well. They gut the power of the gospel because if he is not divine, he is not worthy of saving all of us by one sacrifice. And so again, we are still in our sins. Anyone who denies that Jesus died in place of sinners, anyone who denies, anyone who denies in fact that God created the world from nothing, is a heretic. These are, are such terrible errors that they are, they are not just errors, but they are condemnable, eternally damning errors. Now, there is a difference between an error and a heresy. Not all errors are heresies, but all heresies are errors. I'll give you a couple examples of errors that are significant, but are not heresies. One is, comes around the topic of baptism. We, we baptize children. We baptize children because the church has always included children in its number. We baptize children because ch- children belong to the covenant of God. As children, as children of believers, we baptize children because they have a right to the blessing of God. We do not treat our children like heathens. Paul didn't treat children in the churches like heathens. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, what does he say? He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And what does he do? He writes to the church in Ephesus. He says very plainly that these children belong and are members of the church. So our children are members of the church. Baptists don't baptize children. They instead believe you need to have some sort of a personal experience, some sort of understanding personally that allows you then to present yourself for baptism. I think that they're wrong. They would say the same thing that I'm wrong. The problem for them is that I'm not. They are in error. But you know, you can still be a Christian and be a Baptist. You can believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. You can believe that Jesus died for sinners. You can believe that God created the world out of nothing. You can believe that Christ is Lord over all things. And you can be wrong, even about fairly big things, and still be a Christian. And we put our money where our proverbial mouth is here. You can be a member in good standing at First Church and be a Baptist. You can't be an officer, but you can be a member. You might think of a similar thing like an Arminian. Arminians deny a lot of important truths. They deny that God takes priority in salvation every step of the way, that it depends entirely upon God from beginning to end. But you know, you can be an Arminian and you can be a Christian. Because you can believe in the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the authority of the Word of God. You can believe these things. And so once again, you can be a member at First Church while being an Arminian, not an officer. But you can be a member. Those are errors. Those are not heresies. But there are some things you can't be wrong about. 
You can't deny that Jesus died for sinners. You can't deny that Jesus was God. You can't deny that he is man. You cannot deny the authority of the word of God. If we have no authority of the word of God, we have no word of God. And if we have no word of God, we can't know God. And if you can't know God, there's no gospel. There are some things you cannot deny. And one of those things is what these are denying, which is that Jesus is divine. And because they denied this, they were anti-Christ. We think of anti-Christ, we think of one person. That's appropriate. Paul speaks of this, the man of lawlessness to the Thessalonians. We read about this more in Revelation. But here John is saying there's all kinds of little miniature antichrists. They're the false teachers who would draw people away from life in Christ into condemnation. And John, in verse 23, draws a very sharp dichotomy once again. You don't have the Son, you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. If you have the Son, you have the Father. Your standing with God depends entirely on your standing with Christ. If you do not have Him, you do not have a standing with God. If you do, you are in right standing with God. I hope that over the last seven years or so that I I haven't neglected these core Christian gospel teachings. Our understanding of who God is is of utmost importance. What could be more important to think about? What could be more important to think about than who God is? God is the greatest good. But so often we think about lesser things. And I came across in this last week, I I think, a a helpfully shocking quote. Let's have a little gray book. I have two little gray books for you today, but this is the first one. A little gray book, A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. And in this, he said something which uh, certainly shot me through with some conviction. Maybe it will for you as well. He said this. Now, mind you, he wrote in the 1950s and 60s. It is not a cheerful thought that millions of us who live in a land of Bibles, who belong to churches and labor to promote the Christian religion, may yet pass our whole life on this earth without once having thought or tried to think seriously about the being of God. Few of us have let our hearts gaze in wonder at the I Am, the self-existent self back of which no creature can think. Such thoughts are too painful for us. We prefer to think where it will do more good, about how to build a better mousetrap, for instance, or how to make two blades of grass grow where one grew before. And for this, we are now paying too heavy a price in the secularization of our religion and the decay of our inner lives. We lament the decay of the church. We lament empty churches, empty cathedrals. At the root of that emptiness was the emptiness of our thoughts. We did not think highly enough. We didn't think enough about God and of God. And he wrote this before social media and the internet. 
how much less do we probably think about and of God now? But John wouldn't let his people fall prey to this. He is going to make sure that they are affirmed in their high view of Christ. He will not let his people wander after a fake Christ who not only doesn't save, but who eternally condemns. He affirms for them that Jesus is just as glorious as he had said he was. Now we come into these final verses, verses 24 to 27. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also <coughs> excuse me, will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Now, in this verse 24, John is drawing our minds right back to where he started this letter of 1 John. Back in the first verse of 1 John, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have touched, this we proclaim to you. That which from, was from the beginning. And now you come into verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. This is the message of John. Hold fast. Hold f I'll pray for her, then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, uh, we take for granted what you have given us in being able to come and assemble in peace. And we often take for granted that you have given us the command to do all things decently and in order, and even the health you have given to us. So we pray that as we see a precious image bearer who does not have such things, that you would give her such things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the message is the same here. As, as John is writing to them, he's saying, hold fast, hold firm, cling. Do not leave the real Jesus. Cling to the divine Christ. Do not forfeit your eternal life for a counterfeit. But hold firm to the only Christ who saves. Then he finishes with this encouragement. He says, you have received an anointing. When he says you've received an anointing, this is the way that John speaks of their being filled with the Holy Spirit. You have received the Holy Spirit. And because you have received the Holy Spirit, you don't need anyone to teach you. Now, John is not saying you don't have need for a teacher. After all, John had been the one who taught them. What he means is that you don't need these teachers who are trying to lead you astray. You don't need these teachers with their extra super special, supernatural secret teaching in order for you to know the truth. You just need to know Jesus. You need to know the real one. You need to hold fast to him. 
You don't need the heretics. You just need the gospel. And I preach that gospel to you. And remember going back to, first, to the first chapter, to the very first verses, John had claimed authority. He had seen Jesus. He had looked at Jesus. He had touched Jesus. And he had heard Jesus. If you go back to John's gospel, which they inevitably would have already known, he's the best friend of Jesus. And echoing behind all this teaching must have been in their minds a question, who will you listen to? The Johnny-come-lately heretics or the disciple and best friend of Jesus himself? He says, don't leave behind what I have taught you, because what I have taught you is what I received from Christ himself. And today there are all kinds of counterfeit Christs, all kinds of antichrists who would lead us astray. There's the health and wealth, Jesus, who wants to give you your heart's desires. If only you'll put enough money in the plate today. That ain't Jesus. There's the liberal Jesus, who doesn't care so much for righteousness, looks a lot like the world, cares about love and joy and peace, no holiness. He might have been divine, but he might not. That's not the important part. What's important is his teachings, of course, as I define them. He probably wasn't born of a virgin, but that isn't really that important either. In the Bible, I can kind of make that say what I want it to say. That's not Jesus. There's Jehovah's Witness Jesus, who is a created being. Somebody made him. There was a time in which he was not. That's not Jesus. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made which has been made. If he was made, then something was made which was not made by him. Now, he wasn't made. He's eternal. There's the Mormon Jesus. This is a goofy Jesus. He's a man, the physical offspring of his heavenly father, who is also a man, who was himself living on a different planet before he was God, with a God-man before him and a God-man before him. We can become just like Jesus. We can become gods ourselves. <laughs> that is not Jesus. This is Jesus. John's Jesus is Jesus. And he is a glorious Christ. You know, I, I told you I had a second grade book. Some of you maybe get the shivers. It's an ecumenical creeds and reformed confessions book. Maybe some of you used this in your catechism. And you might have been bored out of your gourd. And I, I apologize for that on behalf of all pastors or catechizers in history. And, but, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is a great book. It has, the, it has the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, Canons of Dort. Those are all good things. But in the very first few pages, there are creeds. And these are creeds that bind us together across denominational lines. These are things that bind us together as Christians. And I want to read to you about the Jesus of the church. And then we'll close. The Nicene Creed begins, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. 
and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. And then from the Athanasian Creed, this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. He is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. This is the Catholic face, faith, little c. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. That's a Jesus worth having. Let's pray. Lord, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. And as there are many antichrists out there who would vie for our attention, for our affection, do not lead us to them, but lead us to the fountain of truth, which is the real Christ who is revealed in your word. We pray that you would help us to embrace all the core doctrines of the faith, Keep us free from error, and especially keep us free from those errors which would take us away from you and rob us of eternal life. Guard us, defend us. We give you thanks for men like John who have written the truth, who testified to what he had seen and looked at and heard and touched. And Lord, we pray that around this world, throughout this church, from now until Christ shall come, that you will raise up teachers who will take the message of John and that they would proclaim it, defending your flock from all attacks. And then, perhaps most of all, we ask that you would bring us before Christ on bended knee, ready to exalt him, proclaim him to be king and God. And we thank you that he is king and God forever. Amen.